Everybody has a story, an experience, or a memory to share if only someone would ask. That's where I come in. I'm Diane Atwood, and you are listening to the Catching Your Memories podcast. This is Jody Lapchick's story. In September 2022, about four months before we did this interview, Jody drove down to South Carolina and brought her elderly parents up to Maine, where she lived. Her mother, in her late 80s, was no longer able to communicate because of dementia, would sleep all day and be up all night, and was on hospice care, primarily because of chronic pain. Her 90-year-old father also had cognitive issues and was unable to take care of his wife or the household. Jody, her sister, and her brother tried to manage their care, but none lived nearby. They hired caregivers to oversee medications and meals. After much back and forth between the siblings about what to do, Jody brought their parents to Maine and moved them into a memory care facility. From that point on, things seemed to go from bad to worse, with Jody near the breaking point when we talked. Her story is about trying to do what she still thinks is right and the challenges she has faced. Well, hello there, Jody Lapchick. How are you today? How's your morning going? I've been up since 4 a.m. So I got up extra early so that I could get a jump on my week. And now I'm ready for a nap. Oh, you're not ready for an interview. You're ready for a oh, nap. I am, I'm also ready for an interview. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, if we hear some snoring sounds, we'll know what happened. We'll know. Are all of your days like that these days? Yeah. And almost every day I woke up today so that it wouldn't be the way it always is. The way it always is, is I wake up and I hit the ground running and I feel like I'm holding my breath until I get into bed at night. And I'm just racing with the clock from the minute I get out of bed until the minute I get back in. Well, you seem calm to me. (laughs) (laughs) But I've known you for quite a while. We're not close friends, but I certainly have met you many decades ago now. And you're always, to me, a high energy person. Right. Right. And I like it that way, but it's too much to do it for 14 hours nonstop. Right. Right. For anyone. Well, this is going to be a story about you and mostly your dad. In the beginning, both of your parents. Why don't you take us back to that moment in what, September? Maybe it was earlier than that, that you realized you needed to go get your parents. Okay. I might ramble a little, but there definitely is a backstory. My brother and sister and I talk all the time and and my sister and I have tried for years and years and years to get my parents, our parents to move to assisted living and they were just never ready. And we had home care. They were far away from all, none of us were down there. And so, so they were in Hilton Head and my sister's in DC at the time and I'm in Maine. And my brother's in Chicago. And so, you know, we're all doing this from afar. And it's kind of a crap show the way that the whole, like just every time we heard about something, it was just, oh my God, no. And then we would have to clean up a mess. So like the one day that my mom let some guy have her mouse on the computer so that he could see her dog. (laughs) And I spent a week cleaning up her accounting. And so after that, from that day on, that was about four or five years ago. From that day on, I've been in charge of the finances. And so it's just been one crisis after another that we are always coming in late on. And about a year and a half ago, I had an epiphany that I would, we have a downstairs apartment that we rent out. I had an epiphany that I would get my parents to move into our first floor apartment. 
we had let our tenants go, which was in a moment of crisis when I thought we had to get them up here immediately. Anyway, there was no moving them. So I didn't know what to do. My brother suggested that I furnish it and rent it out short term, month by month, so that I could at any moment move them up here. So I did that for a year. And then this summer, I thought, okay, I'm going to bring them up here. I have to get it done before it's cold. And so I, and, and, and I, I felt like I was rescuing them. Like my whole, the budget item in my QuickBooks is called M and D rescue for mom and dad rescue. That's just all this whole time. I've been considering that my brother talks about going down to Hilton head to this day and living somewhere. He has some fantasy that isn't even workable. And my sister is the one who can finance things. And she's talked about paying for a assisted living, but I just felt like my idea was the best one. And so I went down and I got them. My sister paid for a private plane because I didn't want to put them on a covid plane to bring them up here. And I brought them up on vacation, quote unquote. I drove down, I rented a car. I drove down the day after Labor Day, again, avoiding COVID at all costs. And when I got there, it was shocking how bad a shape my mom was in. And I learned that at night. I learned that in the middle of the night, she is up doing all kinds of things. She has no idea where she is, what's right. You know, she's in a dream. Did she have dementia? Oh, yeah. Oh, big. yes. She had dementia. We don't know. Like, she's never been diagnosed Alzheimer's or whatever. But yes, yeah, severe dementia in the middle of the night, has no idea anything. And so I learned that the very first night, my sister went down in August and she said, holy cow, mom is in bad shape. We need to get them to assist living. So it was about a week before I left when I was looking, going to visit them around Portland in a mad dash and just like quickly figuring out what I could see, what I could see, and then get our names on a couple of lists. And then I went down to get them. And that's when I realized when I saw mom's condition in the middle of the night that they that she needs memory care not assisted living so um you know called the places told them that's what we're interested in put them on a plane brought them here for vacation but i was very open with my dad mom is not able to live independently we need to get her into a home and his dementia or his memory cognitive impairment is bad enough that we had to just use the word home and she needed round-the-clock care. I couldn't use the words assisted living. That wouldn't mean anything to him or memory care. And he would be very practical. Well, I really would like to see this place. And so I took him to see a couple of them and uh, left her home with somebody else. And that was fine. He was very agreeable when he remembered what they were doing and why, but needed a lot of reminding. And we didn't tell her anything because she couldn't comprehend anything. She was completely out of touch with reality. So let me think for a sec. So I get them here. We have to wait a week or two before we can get them into memory care. And we're going to go to a place locally and they're just lining up the paperwork and such. And so on the very first night, I slept down in the apartment with them and I wake up in the middle of the night and dad's going, Annie, Annie. And for an hour, he's yelling, maybe it was a half an hour. It seemed like three hours. He's in a panic. She's nowhere to be found. We're outside walking around the neighborhood. We live in the city. We call the police. Finally, I realized that the whole upstairs was pitch black, but I hadn't, ch I checked the basement, but I came upstairs and she's standing in my pitch dark office, stark naked, just fiddling around with something, trying to figure it out. 
So after that, we realized we had to sleep on the couch, keep an eye, our eye on the door, all just for the two weeks before they went to memory care, being a home care worker to stay up all night and watch her. And she just got worse and worse and worse. And then she had some pain issues. And so she was already in hospice. And so we started with the morphine. I have a question. So I want to stop you here. You said your mother was in hospice care. Why? Well, she had a nurse practitioner who was her primary care physician or PCP who came to the home and the nurse practitioner recommended hospice and said, you get all these services for free. They're going to give her more attention and pay more attention to her, et cetera. And she qualifies because of her dementia. And this is in Hilton Head. In Hilton Head. When we talked before, you told me that your mother had been treated for uterine cancer a few years ago and she'd had surgery and chemotherapy. Yep. Yep. But that was supposedly gone. But, you know, her her care was so bad. No, I don't know when the last time she had any kind of blood work done or, you know, I don't know if she had cancer again. We don't really, we were so out of touch relying on these home care people and these nurse practitioners that we really, and because there weren't, because there were three of us, I felt like my brother and sister and I passed the buck a little bit. And possibly back then when she was diagnosed, um, that was uh, about five years ago, she probably didn't exhibit the signs of dementia that she did when you went down. No, not to that extent. Not to that extent, but she still didn't really understand. She wasn't cognitively healthy enough to make a decision about whether to do chemo or not. We made that decision. So she still was losing her ability to understand things. Oh, she at, at some point it was recommended that she get hospice services. And then when you brought them up to Maine, that service get a referral, I guess you might call it. Yeah. And she was all ready to go when, when she got here. So that was really good. So she was on morphine and when she went to the memory care, she was uh, pretty out of it, but wasn't sleeping all the time. It wasn't that type of thing, but on the very first morning after she slept there one night, she fell and hit her head And we decided just to not go through the emergency room and look and see if it's a brain bleed and treat it. And we decided to just let nature take its course. Okay. So those are decisions that families can be faced with. I've been there taking care along with my siblings, and there are eight of us all together, but I've been there and caring for elderly and very sick. And one of my parents had dementia. I I understand what that's all about. And what you're talking about now is something called a DNR, do not resuscitate. Right. And it's a question that we get asked if we fill out our living wills. Mm -hmm. If you're in this state, you know, would you want this to happen or this to happen? But it's also a question that all facilities that I've ever dealt with always ask, you know, what do you want to do in the case of? So that's the decision that your family made was that do not resuscitate. At that point, yes, but we had been a lot, there was a lot of bickering back and forth between the time they got to Maine And that point of whether, you know, what do you mean when you say do not resuscitate? And there's so much gray area in there. And my brother would lean toward, you know, sort of going the extra mile to keep her. He really thought she was going to come back. And my sister and I really didn't. So at that point, we all agreed just to let nature take its course. And she died in less than a week. And it was nice because so they were in 
memory care and we went to a place that had, they had to have their own rooms, but we found a place they were right across the hall from each other at the end of a hall. So we had their doors propped open all the time and they went back and forth and it was kind of like we owned the end of the hall. And when mom fell after one day, we moved her into a hospital bed in dad's room and we just used the other room for phone calls and things like that. And it was kind of, I was with dad, the woman who was watching her at night because she still needed to be observed and, and taken care of. And the memory care place was kind of not really helpful. And so she called me and she said, I think this is it. So I went in at two o'clock in the morning and she didn't, she was staying alive for a while. So I finally laid down on the corner of my dad's bed and I woke up in the morning and she was gone. And my dad doesn't remember any of this, but it just, it, you know, since we're talking about me and my dad, I hadn't really put that together that it was me and my dad who were there when she went and just the two of us. And he heard me, he woke up because he heard me crying and he knew and he doesn't remember any of this. <laughs> so anyway, then I scooped him up and I brought him home to my house. So then we didn't go to the apartment downstairs. I brought him upstairs to where my husband and I live. And we had a, a runner up in the memory care assisted living list. And I called the runner up and, um, then they spent the next seven or eight days getting ready for dad and putting him in assisted living, not memory care, even though he could qualify for either. So you decided after your mother died that it it didn't make sense for your dad to stay in that facility. We didn't want him there. We felt unsafe there. That's why we had, we never left them alone there. We had either caregivers or us with them at all times. We just didn't feel like they were competent. They were understaffed, very, very understaffed. So again, one of those issues that people face when they're trying to figure out what is the best care for my parents. You think you're making a good choice, but it's, sometimes it's not until you're there actually experiencing things. So without identifying this place, what was missing? So it was very fancy. It was beautifully designed. It was like a fancy hotel. And so we just loved how it looked and they were, their food was very fancy and in the assisted living part, we didn't spend a lot of time touring the memory care. Cause when I first went and toured, I didn't know we needed memory care. And um, what was missing was a lot of, they didn't have systems for things like Cleaning day is Wednesday. We do all the laundry on Wednesday. We return it to you Wednesday afternoon. On this day, we do this. And on this day, we do this. And the doctor comes on this day. And, you know, they had no systems at this first place. It was all a crapshoot. It felt like, I mean, Diane, I have a an essay that I have began and then I never finished it because I just didn't want to go back there about right. all the things they did wrong. It sounds like it's more independent living, even though it sounds like you thought you were getting assisted living. We thought we were getting memory care and all the other women and men in memory care were just wandering around trying to escape all the time. And there were always alarms going off. My dad just kept, every time we walked around, he said, where are all the people? It was like ghost town. I don't think they expected them to be independent. Nobody should have been independent in this unit. Most of them were nonverbal, but there just weren't enough people. And maybe that's what memory care is. I've had experience with a really wonderful memory care facility, and I'll name them, a, a Vita of Stroudwater, where my mother was. And it's vastly different than what you are describing. It was a, a closed unit. It was small 
There were lots of people attending to the people who lived there. They were loving, kind, and professional. I couldn't have asked for a better place. It was the best place in the world for our mother. So I'm sorry that you had to go through that because what you're going through is just fraught with so much stress and anxiety to have more of it heaped on. Yeah. It's not good. Yeah, that was all the beginning. Right. You, <laughs> you just barely had gotten them here. <laughs> right. All right. So your mom passes. You've made the decision that your dad is not going to stay where they were. And you bring him home, but you find this other place. Mm -hmm. Did he actually get there? Yes. He was there for almost a month. And I visited him every other day. And my husband visited him on the other days. And um, he was so lonely. You know, in his head, he would be like, you know, it's a beautiful apartment. I can't complain. But why are you leaving? Aren't you staying here tonight? Can't you bring me with you? And he never left the room unless someone made him. I was starting to get into a routine with the staff to get him out more to, you know, they were very good about getting him to meals, but I wanted to get him to exercise. And we were just about to start that. And I had all of his paintings from, so he's been painting since after high school and we have all of his paintings. They're on his walls in Hilton Head. So I had them shipped up by his caregiver and they hadn't arrived yet when he slipped and fell. He broke his hip and he ended up at the hospital for six days and then at rehab for three weeks. And he seemed happier there. And I think it's because he had more attention. He wasn't alone in his room from noon until five o'clock. You know, he wasn't alone in his room from six o'clock until bedtime. He had people coming and going. So I decided, I didn't decide for sure, but the more it looked like he wasn't going to be able to walk on his own again, easily without help. And I thought I was going to bring him home anyway. Why not? So I brought him home from rehab. That was so hard. He needed a two-person assist at some certain times of the day when he was super tired when I first got him home. And we got this machine that will help me move him. And we got a ton of other things. And he was on a catheter. And I don't really know why that was temporary, but it kept him asleep all night. And so that was helpful. He broke his hip on November 4th. He came to my house on December 1st and he slept 14 hours, I wrote on my calendar. And then it was just about care and feeding. And I had been looking for, I had went on nextdoor.com and just found local people. I like to have the home care people get all the money. So I wanted to hire people locally. And my husband has done some home care. So I knew what to look for. And so I had five people coming and going, I created a binder and all these different forms. And that was, that was very time consuming to sort of, it was like starting a company to have all these people coming and going and managing all of this stuff. And so that was what took most of my time in the beginning. And then eight days after that, he went to the ER again with heart problems. And that's not that consequential. He came back home five days after that. And then he started to get stronger. And that was mid-December. He's been getting stronger. But the hard part is that he wakes up to pee. I can be in a deep sleep and I have to wake up and I have to get him to the toilet because he's not strong enough to walk on his own. And that's the biggest, hardest thing for me is the nights. Um, so now dad's on hospice. I put him on hospice because I didn't want an event in the middle of the night like that first time when he had the heart issue and he was vomiting up blood and I called 911, but I didn't 
want them to take him to the hospital. I wanted somebody to consult in the middle of the night. And the way that hospice works is they just come over and they help you decide what to do. And that's what I wanted. I'm like, you know, something's going to happen. And I don't want 911 to be my confidants in <laughs> deciding what to do. It sounds like a smart move that you decided to involve hospice. I don't think people realize how well, much service no they can provide. Yeah. Southern Maine Agency on Aging has a caregiver support group that I participate in. And none of them know about hospice. And it's just, yeah, nobody knows about this wonderful paid for by Medicare all the services you could imagine, service. Well, so a lot of people still think that hospice is, oh, they've got 24 hours to live. We've got to call in hospice. But yes, I've, again, personal experience, knowing what they can provide. Sometimes it's pain control. Sometimes it's a, a referral to a place like the hospice home in Scarborough. I mean, it's myriad things that they can provide support, like you said, consultation, another set of eyes. But right. was there a certain criteria, though, that you had to meet for him to qualify? <laughs> well, the cardiologist said 90 years old with heart failure, no problem. <laughs> so, yeah. You have been in the thick of it, but it sounds like you're taking care of yourself a little bit, you know, by reaching out to hospice, that's taking care of you, you recognizing that, hey, I, I cannot do this by myself, but you need more than that, I think. Well, here's the thing. If I didn't have to work, I think it would be fine. I don't mind waiting on my dad all day, every day. I love waiting on my dad all day, every day for a while, you know, <laughs> not, for, not for the next 10 years, but work is the burden thinking that I should be feeling guilty if I'm not working. It's like being a working mom. Guilty when you're working, guilty when you're not. Right. And you are working your tail off. Right. With your dad and with your work. And the person who usually gets left behind is you. Yeah. And when you're a 30-year-old mom, that's one thing. <laughs> when you're a 60-year-old woman, it's exhausting. It's exhausting when you're 30. <laughs> Right. But you have resilience. You have a different kind of resilience when you're 30 than you do at 60. Yeah, absolutely. And it must make you sometimes think about, all right, this is my situation. You have a daughter. What do you want her situation to be when you're in your 90s? Well, for starters, I don't want to be in my 90s. I just don't. I suppose that could change, but I don't see it changing. I don't know, Diane, but I don't want to be a burden. Did your parents have any kind of plan? Well, or? my dad used to say he would he was going to build his own casket, which I don't think he ever did. But we always knew he wanted the cheapest wooden box that we could find. And we always knew he wanted to be cremated. And he affirms that to this day. And my mom always wanted to be buried with her parents in Laconia. And we figured she'd want a fancy casket, but she didn't pick out. You know, we picked it out. So that was as much. But certainly the will, like we've known about the will for ever we've known who's getting what and that kind of thing we used to talk about dot 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 you know kids kids when mom and i you know dot 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 and that was the running joke of you know when we die and so we've talked about it our whole lives i remember being a teenager having that conversation with them it was just matter of fact that's that's good and so you're able to do that with your daughter too sounds yeah. like yeah yeah yeah, I think it definitely is uh, 
a gift because we all die. It's, you know, that is the inevitable truth that we all die, but we just don't want to face it sometimes. We don't want to talk about it and think about it, but it really is a gift to be able to, I think, just talk about it. I can't really get my dad to engage. It was funny when the hospice intake nurse was here, we don't use the hospice, the H word. We just call her the nurse. And we were talking about the DNR and he says, what's that? You know, he's in and out of the conversation. And I explained, he starts talking about the will to her and I'm like, dad, that's not what she's here for. And then he starts saying, I just want you to know that I just want them to throw me in the fire and burn me up. So it was interesting that he, that was the closest he talked about last wishes in a while. And it was just because she was bringing up, you know, she talked about the DNR and stuff. So we've we've all talked about all that. That was easy with my brother and sister and I, because we knew what mattered and what didn't at the end with my mom. And I think it'll be just as easy with him. But I'll tell you, Diane, I lie in bed at night and just pray for it to be over. I mean, I just, and nobody talks about this in the caregiver support group, but my life is completely on hold. I don't leave the house. I don't even have, I don't, I have groceries delivered. I don't have any reason to leave the house. I take a shower for my client Zoom meetings. That's my reason for showering. <laughs> I didn't have time today. Um, and I and it's kind of selfish, but also I think he'd be perfectly happy to go. Like his heart is failing and his aortic valve is so tiny, he can barely get oxygen to his blood. So he walks 10 feet and he's completely winded. I mean- Everyone's thrilled that he isn't in a nursing home. Everyone is so glad. I am so glad that he's not in a nursing home. I know I could do that, but I don't want to do that. So if I have to do this for six more months, God forbid, I will. Because I don't, I mean, I'd rather have him alive here than alive in a nursing home. Besides, he wouldn't live as long in a nursing home because I just think he'd be miserable he wouldn't have any connection, even if I visited once a day. I mean, right now he's with people all 24 hours a day, people who were paying attention to him. If I said, I want to put dad in a nursing home, what would my brother and sister say? I think they'd be willing to do it because they feel bad for me, but I'm not doing this for them or not doing this for them. My sister tells me all the time how grateful she is about how much I'm taking care of dad. She is over the moon about it. I think that if my brother let himself think that way, he'd have to step up. And he doesn't want to step up. So he doesn't let himself think about how grateful he is that I'm taking so good, such good care of our dad. Maybe he should come and visit. He is coming. So we planned a trip to Disney World, me and my grandkids and my daughter and my sister at the end of February. And my brother is coming for at least part of the week. My sister is coming Friday to stay downstairs in the apartment for a week while I am upstairs for a week, never to see them, which isn't really how it's going to go. But I can do that if I want. My brother's coming at the end of February while I'll be out of town and he is going to see firsthand what it means. But I also am going to have a caregiver live here because it's a lot. Tell me about you and your siblings. Where where are you in the lineup? My sister is three years older and my brother's a year and a half younger. So you're the middle child. I'm the middle child. I was the clumsy, awkward child. My sister did everything right. I did everything a little different. My brother was an angel. And you, the middle child, are the child who's taking care of the parents. Well, you're you're doing the hands-on care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why did you decide you wanted to tell your story? So all of my dad's paintings got shipped to the assisted living. Well, he was in the hospital. So it took me a while to finally bring the boxes up here. It was an enormous amount of boxes and packaging. We brought them all here. And one night with 
the one caregiver and I and my dad, we had a little party and we opened the boxes and he was going through his paintings, telling her the origin story of all of them. I didn't know the origin story of any of them. I just never even thought to ask. Most of them had been around since I was born. And so I thought this should be a documentary. And I took some film of it and it was, I didn't even look at it, but I'm pretty sure it was crappy. Like as soon as I would hit record, then none of the good parts would happen again. They all happened before I hit record. But I just thought this would be a short film of this person, me, and taking care of my dad. And what a sweet little documentary it would be. And then I happened to be listening to your podcast and I was like, oh, let me call Diane. And so you did. And so I did. And I decided it would be an important story because it's your story, but elements of it are other people's stories as well. And I think we can learn things from each other. We can be validated by hearing somebody else's story or experience and have that feeling of, oh my gosh, there's somebody who speaks my language. I feel right. the same way. And she dared to say it out loud. Yeah. And I think people say that about me all the time. You said the thing that I was afraid to say. I do think I've done some of that in this interview. And I also feel because I feel unconnected to all of my friends in Maine that I kind of want to say, anybody wonders what happened to me. This is the rock I've been under for the past six months because it feels irresponsible to just disappear, which is what I feel like I've done. So that's another reason to tell the story. Well, I'm glad that you called me. So thank you. Thanks, Diane. Bye-bye. Bye. You have been listening to the Catching Your Memories podcast. If you would like to read a transcript of this episode or leave a comment, go to catchingyourmemories.com. Be sure to come back next month for another episode of Catching Your Memories. And if you have stories or memories you would rather not share in a podcast but would like to preserve for yourself or your family, I also record personal interviews. You can learn more about that at catchingyourmemories.com or send me an email, diane at dianeatwood.com. This podcast was created, produced, and edited by me, Diane Atwood. Catching Your Memories, the interview of a lifetime. <laughs>